Our guest today is one of the most preeminent police psychologists in the world, the author of Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, a guide for officers and their families. Today we talk about all of the mental health issues that go into a career in law enforcement. So please stay with us. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. We need a bearcat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody who's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. I believe we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Uh, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Teslaw. I'm an active duty patrol sergeant. Actually, I'm not a patrol sergeant anymore. I'm just a sergeant. I've been saying that I'm a patrol sergeant for so long that it slips off my tongue sometimes. Uh, but in fact, <laughs> I'm running a desk right now. So I guess I'm not a patrol sergeant. Anyway, getting off track already. I am a sergeant for a sheriff's office in Southern California. And on this show, we strive to uh, find the tactics, tips, and strategies to help us navigate a challenging career in challenging times and with challenging demands. And our guest today is one of the best people out there to help us do that. Dr. Kevin Gilmartin is here. Uh, Kevin and I have been exchanging emails back and forth literally for years. When I started the show way back in, in, in 2015, I had a short list of people that I wanted to interview right away, and he was one of them. His book, again, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, one of the most important, one of the most influential books in my career. I give this book to new people when they come and join my squad, and I've had more than one officer tell me that this book has saved their marriage. I've had more than one officer tell me that this book has helped them understand why they feel the way they do. And he does a great service. He tours all over the world. So it's why it's taken so long to get him on the show. Every time I shoot him an email, he's in Australia or he's in Europe or he's traveling here in the U.S., he's always on the road, always very hard to lock him down. Because he gives this book as a one-day presentation class all over the place. And I highly, highly recommend that you go to his class. You see him in person. He's an excellent speaker. He spent 20 years as a police officer before getting his Ph.D. in clinical psychology. He knows cops. He was a cop. He talks like a cop. He just gets it, right? And so he has an authenticity to him that's sometimes hard and I think for cops especially, it's hard for us to ask for help from people we think aren't going to understand us. You know, one of the biggest obstacles that I hear a lot of people get is they finally get up the courage to go ask for help. And they confront a therapist or they're confronted with a therapist who doesn't understand what we do, you know, and and has a hard time just relating. And Kevin's the opposite of that because he did spend 20 years uh, in the Tucson police, uh, police force. So on this episode today, we're going to talk about, um, uh, all sorts of stuff, but what he sees right with agencies and what they're doing and what he sees wrong, um, anger issues, uh, what he calls the bullshit and the assholes, 
uh, the importance of da- and the dangers of cynicism and is that avoidable um, hypervigilance and the toxic effects of constant hypervigilance on our systems, how we can survive through that, and the right mentality for moving through your career in policing. Very excited to have him on. Uh, like I said, he's been on my list for, for so, so long and so happy to have him here. Before we get to the interview, I want to talk to you real quick and thank our sponsor. For months now, I've been looking for a way to say thank you to my guests and supporters like Kevin. And after being involved in a major international incident recently, I was given quite a few challenge coins. And I was surprised at how much each of those meant to me. And there was almost always a story behind each one of them. So I decided to make a squad room challenge coin to share with guests and supporters. I went searching for a company who could meet my high standards, but I was nervous about making such a purchase online. Most challenge coins you order these days are ordered online and produced in a factory far, far away. And tracking down someone in customer service can be a a very big challenge. And I know that because I've ordered them for my department before. And I'll admit that I'm kind of old school and prefer to look for someone in the eye when I'm looking to spend that kind of money, especially when it's my own. So I delayed a decision on a vendor until I found Signature Coins out of Florida. Turns out some of the guys at Signature Coins actually listened to the show. And when I contacted them, we connected immediately on our shared purpose of honoring this profession that I love so much. Daniel, Trey, Jeff, and all the others over at Signature immediately put me at ease with making such a big purchase, and they bent over backwards to help make that coin that I had in my head a reality that I'm now holding in my hand. Now, if you're like me and you haven't drawn anything since it involved a crayon, have no fear. Signature Coins has over 30 graphic artists on staff right in their Orlando office to help, and they don't charge a single penny to get your artwork ready for production. That is a big difference from other companies that often charge an artwork fee or make you hire an outside designer. Signature Coins does all the art for free with no obligation to buy. They also have an inclusive pricing uh, fee, which means that you are not going to get hit with a hidden upcharge at checkout. They also have a 100% guarantee on their craftsmanship and free next-day shipping in the U.S. when the coins are ready to go. And their customer service team is right there in Orlando. The turnaround time is quick, about two weeks, which is super fast for coins. And like I said, free next day air when, the, when your shipment's ready to go. I couldn't be happier with my coins, and I couldn't be happier that I got them from Signature Coins. If you're looking to make your own challenge coins, you can find out more at SignatureCoins.com or email info at SignatureCoins.com, and Jeff will hook you up with a quote. If you use the coupon code the Squad Room, all one word, you'll get $50 off your first order, and you can learn more at SignatureCoins.com. One last reminder before we get to Dr. Uh, Kevin Gilmartin, our store is now open. You can go to thesquadroom.net and click on store in the top menu there, and you can see all sorts of different t-shirts, stickers, uh, coffee mugs, iPhone cases, all sorts of stuff inspired by the guests on the show, inspired by the things we talk about on this show, and, uh, and it's really special stuff. It actually has its own website, too, and its own Instagram, and you can follow it at a worthy cause life. And it's a worthycauselife.com. But you don't need to remember that necessarily. You can go to thesquadroom.net and just select a shop if you want to wear some cool gear and support the show. All right, now here we are with Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, the author of Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, a guide for officers and their families. So Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, thank you for being with us on the show. It's my honor. Um, you know, is it okay if I call you Kevin? I should have asked that before we started. Sure, before. that's fine. That's, that's what <laughs> That's my name. <laughs> okay. So um, for the for the few people out there that don't know you, I want to give a quick – I'd like to give you a chance to give a quick bio of, of 
of what you do. You're current, you are a clinical psychologist at this point in your career, but you've had quite a career. And uh, you specialize in working with and, uh, and managing the issues around the police career. Can you tell us about what led you to this point, though, real quick? Well, there's always been a lot of police officers uh, in, in my family. And when uh, my career started, I started at the local law enforcement agency. And when I retired, I was in the behavioral sciences unit. And I had a Ph.D. in psychology. So it was natural just to continue working with the cops. Uh, it became apparent to me that we really, really were, were missing the entire boat in terms of uh, mental health, fitness, and generalized wellness for police. And that, that sort of, over the years, has just stayed my focus. What, so it's unusual for someone to be a full-time police officer and have a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. Um, what drew you to, towards that so, so early in your life? I had some uh, good mentors that, that I had run into while I was studying psychology. Um, probably one of the real fathers of American police psychology, Dr. Harold Russell, um, who wrote the book Understanding Human Behavior for Effective Police Work. And I kind of fell under his wing, and, um, it, it, and he sort of alerted me to many of the pitfalls that police officers went through. And, and I'm talking now in the 1970s, and you know, I've just stayed with it over the years. And I was at an, in an agency in Tucson, that was uh, pretty enlightened, I believe. They were way ahead of the time, maybe 20 years ahead of other agencies in terms of having a full-time behavioral sciences unit and addressing some of the issues that are standard practice right now. Well, I don't even know if it's standard practice nowadays. We, we have a behavioral services unit at my agency now, but it's only about three years old. And the officer aspect of that has only come into play in the last 18 months to 24 months or so. Um, so it seems like you were in a position that was very progressive. What was, because I think BSU is just still kind of unheard of in many parts of the country, what what was your mandate when you were in the, that behavioral services unit? Well, you know, that was the beauty of it. There really wasn't a mandate other than to help the cops. And it it's interesting, because even to this day, when you talk about psychological services or you talk about behavioral sciences units, one of the big errors that I think we have in the U.S. is it all becomes very siloed. I know police psychologists that are full-time specialists in their area, but their area is only pre-employment psychological testing of police officers. Then I'll know other mental health professionals whose specialty is responding after critical incidents, and they do debriefings. And it's all very, very siloed, and there's not a lot of just generalized interaction for the overall wellness of police officers. The journey through a police career from the police academy until retirement is a very destructive journey. It's an extremely destructive journey, and I don't think it's getting any better. I think, if anything, it might actually be coming worse. We're spending more money now than we ever have on psychological services for law enforcement officers. We have counseling programs employee assistance programs, and, all, and a, a generalized 
awareness that psychological issues are important for police, yet in spite of the investment of all those resources, we have an increasing suicide rate. So maybe we're not thinking holistically enough for our cops, helping them keep their entire life functional and together. You know, your, your book covers a lot of those things, and it's a book that, you know, maybe I'll start off at the top of our interview here just thanking you for this book because I read it in probably 2012, and I saw you speak that same year, and it helped me frame a lot of the issues that I saw in, my, in, in other people I worked with, and I thought, you know, kind of like putting a little mental note against some of these things, like, okay, I understand that, and I was starting to feel some of it. But your book covers a lot of these things and the and the maintenance that we can do. What are the things, like you, you say it might be getting worse. What are the unique aspects of policing that are worse now than they were, you know, many years ago? Because crime is down conceivably. Information There's more information out there to help. But what's, the, what's our stumbling block still? I think the stumbling block for helping police and the wellness of police is that we're not asking the right questions. Hmm. I think that we're taking traditional mental health services, you know, the doctor is in, come talk to me and I'll help you solve your problems. We're taking that model, the traditional clinical model, and we're superimposing it on the police culture. And I think the people doing that are very competent clinicians, but I think they're missing a big part of the culture of police work that that is the underlying issue. And if you think about the police culture, the most valuable thing a police officer wants is to be safe. From from day one at the police academy, we teach officers how to be tactically proficient. We teach them officers safety. We teach them street survival, which has to be our number one training priority. But when a police officer is practicing officer safety what they do every day when he or she go to work goes to work is they elevate their brain into a very elevated level of alertness they're very perceptive of threat in their environment and that causes the physical change to go into an elevated level of adrenal cortical stimulation reflexes are enhanced peripheral visions enhanced decision making increases reaction time increases these are all the attributes of a good operational police officer or dispatcher. They're in that heightened level of alertness, ready to solve the problem. That's a biological state. It's developed because of the context of where police officers and dispatchers have to operate every day. But when they get off duty each day, the body physiologically swings them into the equal and opposite direction. They go, it's it's homeostasis. They go from the elevated sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system to the elevated parasympathetic. So the person who at 4 o'clock in the afternoon is alert, alive, energized, and quick thinking when they're in the sympathetic state, an hour and a half later, when they're in the mirror image biological state, they're detached, they're isolated, they're apathetic. And it's this pendulous biological swing that's very easy to address and very easy to correct that we have been missing. So our officers drop into this depressive state. They don't want to interact. They want to socially isolate. They don't want to exercise. And that's, it's in that state 
that they conduct their personal life, and that's where the devastation occurs. And if we address that state, I think we start having some remedial effect on lowering the number of divorces, reducing substance abuse, you know, decreasing social isolation. And these are all the precursors that lead to the police officer's personal life becoming destroyed. So even though we're having very good psychological services, I think we're missing the psychophysiological dimension, which produces the depression that so many police officers feel off-duty. It's a really interesting point because, you know, even just preparing for an interview today, I reread your book, <clears throat> and in my own experience, uh, you know, just I have 15 years on. I've done the vast majority of that in patrol or in rotating shift type assignments, and notice that, especially on night shift, right, when your circadian rhythm is completely out of whack, um, that we work on a four-month rotation, that towards the end of that four months, Come come uh, week twelve of that rotation or so, I am showing signs that if I went to WebDMD, WebMD would be uh, consistent with like depression, right? And it Absolutely. would be like despot, feeling despondent, feeling frustrated, uh, extreme anxiety or, or, or elevated anxiety anyway, um, bad mood, all those things. And then I would come out of it by the time we rotated the days after two three weeks being uh, back on day shift. And well, the only thing I would say yeah. to, to kind of challenge you a little bit is you said it was like depression. I would say it was depression, mm. and it was because depression is not a psychological state. Depression is a biological state that has psychological aspects to it, but it's, it's a biological state. It's an imbalance of neurotransmitters, and if, if we have a pitfall in the United States is that we're conceptualizing all of these emotional issues that police officers experience as psychological, whereas in reality they're biological, and we can address them much much quicker if we just conceptualize them that way. So to, to say it in a different way, just so I understand you, would be <clears throat> this isn't just a problem of attitude or uh, things in the, in the brain or perspective. It's about the chemicals that are actually going on in our body, the adrenaline, the cortisol, um, and, and, and maintaining that? Okay. Absolutely. 83% of police officers report inadequate sleep in yeah. the United States, 83%. Uh, almost 50% of those police officers that were studied, their sleep disorder was so severe, it warranted a referral to a physician. 40% of America's police officers are clinically obese. Now, these pe this, this data gets ignored in the United States. We just ignore it. And I say in the United States because other countries are starting to address those issues. I do quite a bit of work in Australia, and they're certainly not free of issues there by any means. You know, they still have the same issues with PTSD, substance abuse, and suicide that North American police do. But they're starting to conceptualize it by taking biological measurements off of police officers by wearing smartwatches and running them through apps they give the police officers some feedback on what, what their sleep patterns are and what their pulse rates are over the course of the day. And I think they're going to get far ahead of us using that model than we are with the only model of, you know, we have Dr. Smith is available for consultation, go talk to the doc. Because by the time you're aware of this depressive state, many times there's been destruction. We've had lost marriages, 
Uh, we, we, we have alienation of personal lives. I, I, I personally get tired of the way we train police. We take these young men and young women into our police academies. We make them physically fit. We, we, we have them very well trained, very idealistic. Then we put them out into the profession of policing, and we come back 25 years later, and the 175-pound police officer who can knock out 25 push-ups like nothing, now, 20 years later, they've gained 40 pounds, they're type 2 diabetic, they have the precursors to heart disease and premature death syndromes, they've had several failed marriages, and we let them go off into a, uh, a reduced life expectancy. And the wreck, that wreckage is very predictable in law enforcement, and it's very preventable. That's, that's the real tragedy about, about uh, the way we look at police stress. The verbal counselings and, and psychological services are very, very necessary, but so is addressing the biological changes that produce the psychological changes. So if you were running, uh, to, 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 to address that issue, if, you're, if you were running a BSU unit nowadays, you know, you're put in charge, and there's the, the, the referrals for, for therapy or the different kinds that are out there, how do you address and, and what do you do with the biological stuff to, to, to bring that up to speed? Well, the first thing I would do is change the entire training curriculum. I would, I would make that every police officer and their significant other and their partner gets to go to a class on sleep management. I doubt the majority of police academies have any training in maintaining sleep hygiene. Yet 83%, as I mentioned, of police officers had inadequate sleep. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to spin this off into field operations for a second. Sure. They would send you to the range two times a year, four times a year, to fire your weapon. Yet the research is very clear. A police officer in their 24th hour of sustained wakefulness, when a cop is up for 24 consecutive hours, their reaction time and their judgment is 600% more impaired than a civilian who has no firearms training. So we put cops out on street. We don't talk to them about sleep patterning. When they're in their 18th hour of sustained wakefulness, their judgment and their reaction time is 0.08 equivalent. 24 hours is 0.10 equivalent. Mm -hmm. So we, we train these police officers at the academy level. We run them out to the range and on paper targets, they all can shoot, don't shoot. And we have all these, these simulated uh, decision-making paradigms, but none of them are made at two o'clock in the morning where the person has four hours of sleep the night before. They're 20 pounds overweight. They are, have a resting pulse that's 20 beats faster than it needs to be, and they've just sprinted after somebody for 25 yards. Then they have to make the decision and we get a bad police shooting, then what we do is we just double up down and we go back to looking at our firearms training. <laughs> you asked me what I would do if I had the behavioral sciences unit. I would look at very directly at what we already know, and that sleep impairs police officers. The second thing we'd start looking at is you have to live in a world of elevated adrenaline every day when you're a police officer. When you're a dispatcher, 
you're sitting there on that console, you're a, patr- a police officer, you're either a detective or you're a patrol officer, you're in that elevated level of alertness that's brought on by adrenaline. That cortisol that you're, that's keeping your brain alert is also hitting your liver. And the liver is releasing blood glucose into the bloodstream. That blood glucose is what the energy source for the aliveness that cops feel when they're on the street. But what it does is it causes the pancreas to kick out insulin. And insulin is the fat storage hormone. So the adrenaline grabs the blood glucose and it infuses it in the fat cells of our police officers. So we like to joke about this with cops eating donuts. No, it has nothing to do with donuts. It has to do with practicing officer safety. So a good cop is going to gain weight around their abdominal area because of adrenaline, very much like a bear does prior to hibernation every year. Except the bear does it once a year. The good cop does it once a day. So we get a cop in great shape at the police academy. Then five years later, they're 20 pounds heavier, and they're in a pre-diabetic trajectory at that point. Now, we also know when that's transpiring that depression will be part of that syndrome. But the beauty of all of this is Duke University studies on depression established that walking on a treadmill for 20 minutes a day treats depression as effectively as antidepressant medication. Interesting. So when I get to be king for a day, every police officer and every dispatcher will end their workday with mandatory supervised physical fitness. It's not voluntary. It's not whether they want to do it or not. It's just like going to the range. You'll hit the gym for a half hour at the end of each shift, and we will have trained officers who are coaches who will put the, monitor the person biologically and help that person with what their physiological you know, shortfalls are. If you have somebody who can pump iron all day long, they might be on a treadmill getting their cardio up. If you have some pencil-thin marathon runner who can run all day long, they're going to get that guy doing some dynamic strength training so he has upper body capacity with strength. So, and we ignore the entire biological aspect of police. And we bury cops early. It's, um, it, one of the things that I find, I, I guess it gets me most impassioned about this, is when I deal with psychologists many times, they're very competent at what they do, but they're sampling the, the police officer from a psychological perspective. Their worldview is through the eyes of a psychologist. So they'll go to a police department and they'll study the cops. And they're very sincere, well-meaning clinicians. And most of the cops are between the ages of you know, the latter 20s to mid-40s. That's the bulk of the workforce. Mm-hmm. I think I've been in a unique position because I've started studying these cops in, in the 1970s. And I've followed these same cops now to 2020. So now we're talking almost 50 years of following the same group of cops for a half century and have watched them grow old. And um, we're still studying the young cops, but we, we talk very little about the fact that what that police officer does at 30 determines their health status at 50. Mm-hmm. And we kind of throw the older cop under the bus because they retire and they're no longer our problem. 
and they die prematurely. The other thing that happens is while they're operational, a police officer cannot make quick decisions if we're ignoring all these biological and psychological components. Uh, we are willing to talk about trauma, but we're not willing to talk about diabetes and premature death and heart disease and the depression that leads to the suicides. So that, that, that when you ask me what I would do if I was the a chief of a behavioral sciences unit today, there'd be a strong component of time in the gym, mandatory every day for police officers. Yeah, I think that gets touched on a lot, which is the idea of physical fitness and being prepared for the fight, and, and officers understand it from that level. That's easy. That's the easy one to relate to. Uh, but I'm, so is it important? You mentioned at the end of the day, is that is it? Is that important, or is it just a matter of getting movement and getting in training at any point during the day? And why is it that the physical training not only makes you stronger for the fight, but does it flushes these issues out, or how does it solve those things? Basically, it metabolizes the, the, the physiological hormones that are ready for fight or flight. Mm. You know, we, we, we go from you know, 100 miles an hour, we drop it down to doing nothing at the end of each shift. Adrenaline will produce depression. You know, this is where the firefighters have such an advantage. The, the, the cop goes on duty, and the cop has to push the brain into this hypervigilant state for the entire duration of his or her shift. They're in that elevated level of alertness. The firefighter doesn't have to go into elevated alertness until the bell rings. Then they go out, they handle a very life-threatening call, very intense. I'm not making, berating firefighters. You know, they, they're first responders. But they do not have to biologically respond until the bell goes off. Then they spike up their adrenal cortical response. They do their run for service. Then they come back to the firehouse. They can stand down, debrief, prepare their equipment for the next run for service. It's almost like an up and down pattern for the firefighter. But the firefighter will spend significant amounts of every day in a normal range biologically. The cop will not. The cop will be in the elevated biological state. Even if nothing's taking place, they'll have an elevated level of alertness, which is producing the biological stress hormones, which causes the body to infuse fat cells with glucose. That's why cops get fat and firefighters don't. You know, women don't buy calendars of cops with their shirts off. They buy calendars of firefighters, you know. What would you call a calendar of cops with their shirts off, you know, badges and bellies or something? Because they're infusing glucose in the abdominal area, and that's a precursor for diseases that are going to shorten the cop's life. The same thing that keeps the cop lean and muscular is the same event that will reduce depression in the police officer. And depression is the precursor for the suicides that we're dealing with in police. It's not the only variable by any means. But I, I, I personally get tired of hearing about the stigma of going for psychological services. You'll, you'll hear mental health people talk about, you know, the reason cops don't come and get help is because of the stigma. Well, why is it that a significant percentage of cops who take their life are already in counseling? Because there isn't a, they are getting the services. Maybe it's that a lot of times... The services are missing the whole biological component. I'm not downplaying mm -hmm. the psychological component, but we're totally ignoring the sleep disorders, the obesity, the social isolation. We're ignoring that whole issue, 
with our cops, and it changes the whole trajectory of their life. You know, I think in that, framing it in that way, too, the biological issues, it's, it is more socially acceptable. There is less um, fear of being branded by your partners with having a biological issue than it is having a mental health issue. And I even see that as a way to pitch and present these programs to officers under that uh, under that justification more than the mental health and to get buy-in in that way. It's easier to say, look, we know you don't sleep because you're on night shift. You just don't. You got two kids at home. You don't sleep. <laughs> like I don't sleep. I have I have a severe sleep disorder myself, right? And, and stop and think, how much training has your police department given you on sleep hygiene? Yeah, none, obviously. I mean, none. Yeah. And, and yet this industry does. If you were a truck driver, you'd probably get training on it. If you were working in a, 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 a production plant that was 24-hour shifts, you probably would. You know, you would, they'd have some training on lowering the temperature in the sleeping area, time away from any kind of screen time for, the, for the, the activation of the visual cortex. How, what kind of blackout curtains do you put into your sleeping area? Uh, and very little simple things that, that make the, um, that would give the police family a chance to, to address the, the impact of shift work. We also know people on protracted, protracted uh, midnight shifts have an immune system impact that affects them after a period of time. And we can't ignore shift work. We can't ignore these biological components, which we totally do, which the, the symptoms are going to be psychological. You know, I, I would just throw something out also. There's very few professions that screen their workforce psychologically before they get hired. When you look at what a police officer has to go through to get hired, they go through oral boards, they, they do testing, then they have to see a psychologist. And in many states, they have to take a polygraph. So we know we're hiring mentally healthy, physically fit young men and women. Yet we have a suicide rate that's significantly higher than the general population. So we have to look at what's the intervening impact, what's caused that to transpire with those depressions and that social isolation. And we're coming up short when we're just thinking it's a, a totally psychological component. In ancient Rome, soldiers would step into battle to fight for the empire. But they also had bills to pay and family back home to support. Doesn't that sound familiar? Well, if soldiers performed well in battle, they would be paid in gold coins. If they performed with exceptional valor, they would be given an extra coin. Legend has it that this coin was often minted with the name and symbol of the legion in which they served, and that soldiers would hold on to these coins as proof of their bravery. This made their coins a prized possession. Throughout history, unique coins have been part of nearly every warrior tradition. There's a story from World War I in which an American pilot was held captive as a German POW and stripped of all of his personal identification. He escaped the POW camp but was detained by the French who thought he was a German spy. He carried with him a coin with a symbol that one of the French soldiers recognized as that of an American squadron. The coin saved his life. Challenge coins remain an important part of this warrior tradition, including those in law enforcement and the other first responder professions. Signature Coins out of Orlando, Florida is my choice for challenge coins for the squad room. Their staff of artists can create and make most any design a reality, and their quality is top-notch. 
The people at Signature Coins are complete professionals like you, and they take their jobs seriously. Quality is their priority, and I can tell you that it shows in the Squadroom Coins that I ordered from them. You can check out their handiwork on my Instagram, at The Squadroom. For more information or to get a free quote with no artwork fee, check out their website at SignatureCoins.com. If you use the coupon code The Squadroom, you can get $50 off your first order. That's SignatureCoins.com. Now, back to the show. You know, I, I remember that one of the biggest things I remember from your class was your comment that when you get hired and you go through that hiring process and you're out on the street, you have a warranty on you. And, and, it's, and I think you said it was five years. You're good for five years, and then that warranty needs to be reevaluated, meaning you need, a, you need a check-in of some sort on where your mental health status is. Um, do you see anybody doing that or participating in that on an agency level? There are some. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to sound like I'm uh, this, this crazy man out in the desert <laughs> shouting at police officers. There are some very, very effective police departments in this country who their cops get time on duty to exercise every day. Mm. And when I go into those environments, the, the atmosphere in those environments are entirely different than where you have a bunch of sleep-deprived, angry cops that are at war with their own agency, uh, they hate management, and they're, they're disengaged from the public. Uh, and unfortunately, in police work today, I think it's more stressful than it's ever been before. You, you know, it's being a, a cop today when you have people screaming at you and thrusting cell phones in your face, recording every word and every provocative confrontation, and the rest of society gets a free pass because we can blame cops for every social injustice that exists in the United States, it's the cops' fault. And I have just been astounded at watching how police executives have been able to throw the cops under the bus. We have a terrible issue, for example, with homelessness and mentally ill people uh, in the homeless and wandering our streets. Mm -hmm. And immediately that has become a police problem. It's not a public health problem. It's not a... Um, a state hospital problem. Now, it's a police problem for handling the mentally ill. I'm just wondering how long it will be before they blame the, the cops for COVID-19. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a police problem. The cops just didn't adequately handle it. Mm -hmm. And that gives everybody else a, a free pass. And I don't see police executives standing up and saying, this is nonsense. Stop blaming my police officers because you don't run a state hospital where these people need to be committed to. Uh, you know, stop blaming the police officers because we have a, a homelessness issue in here. They're actually the only profession that's going out, for the most part, in dealing with these folks. And the, the police kind of just get thrown under the bus and abandoned. Um, and it's a, it's a really tough job. And we do so little to assist them. Yeah, I want to dive into that a little bit because in the book you talk about how officers so often uh, develop a victim mentality and how we just sort of hang our hat on that, and we dig, we dig our hole deeper and deeper by buying into this victim mentality. Um, well, when I say victim, legitimately is a victim mentality. Yeah. Uh, the reason that comes about is because cops care so much about their job, they take all their emotional issues in their life, or I shouldn't say issues in a sense, their emotional needs. Mm -hmm. Before they become a cop there, 
they're a mountain bike rider and they're a fly fisherman and they're a basketball player and they're a tennis player. And so they have this diverse sense of, of worth. Their sense of worth is in 15 different portfolios. Mm-hmm. And police work robs you of a personal life if when you get off duty every day you drop into a depression. So you stop fly fishing. You stop being a mountain bike rider. You stop running 10Ks, but you're a really good cop. You work overtime. You become competent as a cop. So your entire persona is into the police role. You don't say, I work as a cop. You say, I am a cop. Cops care deeply about their role as a cop. Here's the problem. When you, when you invest energy into something, emotional energy, you have to control it. So in comes management. And if I'm the chief of police and I tell you, you have to put a hat on, it's mandatory. You have to put a hat on when you step out of the patrol car. In any other workforce, it would just be a hat. It would be irrelevant. But cops attach such personalization to that police role that that would enrage them. Something as simple as a mandatory hat (laughs) policy would set both cops off the deep end. (laughs) <laughs> and that's what I mean by the victim mentality. Mm. The victim believes somebody is always screwing with them. Mm-hmm. The, the way we're using victim in, in our context here, yeah. the self-perceived occupational victim, not in any way demeaning you know, legitimate victims of crime. Right. Um, but most cops would be really pissed off if the chief made them wear a hat. And, and the rational discussion is, in the big scheme of things, how important is having to wear a tie when you go to court or having to put a hat on as part of your uniform, it, it takes two ounces of emotion, but the victim cop puts 400 ounces of emotion into it. So now our collective bargaining units are fighting about the mandatory hat policy. They're not championing the needs of police officers, which would be for annual physicals, which we, would be for extended uh, vacation hours, would be for addressing the emotional needs of police officers. Um, and, and that's what I mean by the, the victim culture. It's very easy to get caught up into it. Oh, yeah. If you've ever really cared deeply about a job and had an assignment, a specialty assignment particularly, that you care deeply about it, then have someone come in and transfer you out of that assignment. You know exactly what I mean by by the victim mentality, and that's that's rampant in the police culture. Yeah, you know, there's a saying, I'm sure you've heard it, you know, cops uh, hate two things, change in the way things are. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah. I, so I, I guess I've never thought of that. I found that to be absolutely correct. However, I've never thought of it in the context of the fact that change means you're not controlling something, and the way things are probably means you're not controlling something there either, and that may... Well, you know, I... Um... When, you, when I conceptualize stress, mm-hmm. people said, what is stress? I would say stress is any situation that has two dimensions. It has high demands in order to get the job done, very demanding, lots of demands, but you, you combine it with low control, high demands and low control. That's stress. Mm-hmm. Cops do fine in pursuit in vehicle pursuits, provided they're driving. Mm-hmm. If you're the passenger, a stra- uh, pursuit is very stressful. <laughs> I, I was talking to an, um, an Air Force colonel one time who, who flew the SR-71, mm-hmm. you know, the Blackbird, mm-hmm. the supersonic surveillance plane. And I asked him, I said, how fast 
does that aircraft fly? And he said it can cruise at 2,400 miles an hour ground speed equivalent, 2,400 miles an hour over the ground. And I said, man, that's fast. I'd hate to be a passenger in a plane flying that fast. And he looks at me and he goes, I would never be a passenger in a plane flying that fast. I will fly it, but I'm not going to sit by and let some other idiot fly it. See, and that's what cops do. They become passengers in their own life. So at 9 o'clock at night, instead of taking a CrossFit class or coaching their daughter's softball team or, or tying some flies for a fishing trip this weekend, the cop is sitting around pissed off about the fact the chief is making them wear a hat because they put all their eggs in the basket of being a police officer and the chief holds that basket. And we have this huge labor management split that's um, astounding in the United States. The mm-hmm. confrontation is just amazing. You know, I thought in this, um, one. Of, I have a question about how to kind of turn on that parasympathetic system appropriately. Um, and maybe I'll ask that before I share with you kind of my own journey through your work and some recent realizations I had. But, when, you know, when someone is coming home from shift and uh, they're, again, in rereading your book, it didn't connect the first time I read it that that crash that you're coming off work is always happening at the time you're coming home. You know, it's not happening yeah, when you're going into duty. work. You, yeah, you're coming home off duty. You're You're interacting with your wife or your spouse or your kids for the first time in 12 hours. Uh, and with our shifts, maybe they haven't even seen you in a couple of days. So that interaction is almost hell-bent for destruction, if yeah. not managed correctly, because it's only downhill from there as you continue to crash into that reactive state from hypervigilance. So how do Absolutely. we take a moment or take whatever time is needed to turn ourselves on appropriately in that parasympathetic state to to react because we're going to react. Our body is going to react to it, right? But how do we do well, that well, correctly? Well, the absolute simplest way, as I had mentioned earlier, would be the at exercise. the end of each shift to have immediate period of exercise. Okay. Now, there'd be people who would incorporate within that some mindfulness training, some yoga, or things of that nature. Um, that those, those work. But just get on an elliptical, just getting a, a, a CrossFit class where people are just doing the workout of the day aggressively for about 20 minutes, and it's done. Then the, you know, when you talk to cops about exercise, the, the cops that are exercising routinely, you'll say, what's the best part about that exercise? They'll, they'll always say, when it's done. <laughs> <laughs> I feel relaxed. Mm-hmm. I've rejoined the human race. Do you know, I still think the chief is an idiot for making me wear a hat. I'm just not thinking about him anymore. Yeah. And, and that's what we want. We're not trying to change your attitude towards mandatory hat policies. We're trying to change your reactivity to mandatory HEP policies. And, you know, an analogy that I use a lot is uh, one of the recreational pursuits that I personally do is I like to rope. I like to team rope. Uh, You know, one person goes out and ropes the front of a steer. The other person comes in and ropes the hind two feet. And with my job, a lot of times the horse that I would compete on, which is a very athletic horse, might have to go two or three days without having been ridden. Now, he's, he's like a cop, that, that rope horse. He's going to get in that rope box, and he's going to explode out there and run as fast as he can to that steer so you can rope it. Now, if that horse hasn't been exercised in three or four days, 
I'm not just going to throw my saddle on him and get out and get on his back because he'll start bucking and breaking half and launch me. We, because he's, he's totally, it's an adrenaline-driven response. Well, that's what cops do. We take cops, we put them in these highly charged states, and they're just full of adrenaline, and we wonder why the baton comes out. Or we wonder why we have the off-duty, the domestic violence issues inappropriately. And I'm convinced, and the more I study this, if we can start addressing and adding this to our toolbox, we'll really reduce the, the issues and that, that phase you're talking about, about getting off-duty. You're at the bottom of the roller coaster, and that's when your kids want to talk with you. That's when you know, your spouse or partner wants to spend some time. And it's at the worst biological time there is. And we have to get them out of that biological state. And that's where that diffusement physically after shift, mandatorily every shift would come in. Hmm. What are the things long-term, too? I mean, I'll talk specifically about the survival part, you know, emotional survival. So physical fitness, physical uh, activity, even just the 20 minutes of walking, you touch, uh, obviously, sleep management uh, is a priority. You touched on mindfulness just now. Uh, any particular type or style of mindfulness that you endorse or believe in, or what are some of the other no, things? I, think just, I just think making it a priority, making the, the, whole, per, the whole cop a priority. Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, I'm, I'm gonna, when, when you're sitting in a police department and you walk in and you find a bunch of sleep-deprived, obese, angry men and women, that's not, that's not the way it ought to be. And I'm not saying this so, so they should look like a bunch of, you know, poster Marines. I'm saying that that person is not functioning on the job, and their personal life is not either. They, they, we've robbed them of the quality of their life mm-hmm. and any dimension that adds to the quality of their life. For, for example, um, when I'm in Australia, I was just down in, a few months ago to Melbourne, Australia, the, uh, the Victoria Police to the best of my knowledge, they start with nine weeks vacation each year. Wow. How, what's the average American police officer start with? Two weeks per two year? Two weeks, I think, yeah. Yeah, two weeks. They're starting with nine weeks. Now, that's an investment in, in the men and women of their law enforcement profession. And it's four times greater investment than the average American law enforcement agencies hmm. invest in. In Canada, New Zealand, and Australia, they all have sabbatical programs for police. A police officer works for four years. They have the option of taking the fifth year off with full pay. Wow. Now, how that works, it's a self-funding program, like a deferred comp program. The cop would hold back 20% of take-home. It would be in escrow by the, by the organization, then at the end of their fourth year, they can take that fifth year fully funded and have a sabbatical to basically travel, go to the university, or do, you know, do what that, they want to go fishing or camping. Uh, that concept is so alien to American police, they can't even get their mind around it. It's funny you said that because I, uh, so I got injured a couple of months ago, not injured, I had to deal with a surgery that was a result of a chronic issue. And so I'm sitting at home for six weeks and I couldn't, it was a, it was a surgery on my strong hand. So I couldn't type, I couldn't hold a gun. I couldn't do anything normal that I normally did. And I was sort of forced to shift some of my activities just out of, you know, necessity. And 
I had that thought at the time after I came out of that and realized how much better my attitude was. And like, man, wouldn't it be great if every, if on your fifth year, I just went month. I was like, if on your fifth year, you were forced to take a month off paid and you could do whatever you wanted with it. You just couldn't come to work. (laughs) You know, I I do a lot of training in Australia and the Australian cops kind of laugh and chuckle at, at um, American cops. They, they, they really do. I mean, they, they're much more sophisticated than we are when it comes to these psychological variables. Um, if I have a class, and they're, they're, the police departments there are very large because there's only like six or seven in the whole country. Um, I'll have, it's not uncommon to have a thousand plus constables in a, a large auditorium setting. And I'll ask, how many of you have ever been to the United States? I'll ask the Australian cops. And... 99 to 100% of the cops will raise their hand. They've been to the United States multiple times on their holidays, on their vacations. I'll have a class in the United States, and I'll ask, how many of you have ever been to Australia? And I'll have maybe a couple of hundred cops, five guys will raise their hand. Then I'll say, oh, I don't mean when you're in the military, when you're in the Navy or the Marine Corps. How many of you have been there on vacation? And I'll have one or two. And they'll always say, that's on my bucket list to do. <laughs> and, I, I, you know, in, uh, American cops, because of that depression when they get off-duty that goes unaddressed, the biological depression off-duty, they stop doing things. You can always tell an American cop, because they'll always use the word, I used to. I used to go to the gym. I used to race mountain bikes. I used to play basketball. And that goes on for about 10 years. Then they combine it with, I'm a gunna. You know, in 10 years, you know, it's KMA time, and I'm out of here, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to play golf. And they vacillate in time between what they used to do and what they're going to do. And I think we have to show cops how to do today. You know, don't tell me you're going to play golf five days a week when you retire in, in 10 years. Tell me what you're doing today. So we need to be also talking with our families, our cops and their partners, about time management and specific goal setting and just putting resources into helping them. Other than just saying, you know, we have a psychologist, you can go talk to the psychologist. Making this part and parcel of their daily, their, their, their routine in-service training. You touch on in the book the goal setting and the time management and it's funny because it it has to be one of the hardest things, and you you almost you make light of it in a educational way in the book, but about how because I this speaks to me and I think every other cop of not wanting to make decisions once you get home, right? And well, you made you're a, biologically incapable of doing it, right? Yeah, I feel that, dead. <laughs> and uh, I laugh because you know I don't know how many times uh, I've told my wife over the course of my career, look, like, look, I made a hundred, I made several hundred decisions today. I can't decide where we're going to go eat. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, that's a good, that's, and that's so that if you had a hundred police officers present, all a hundred would, yeah. would endorse the statement you just made. Right. They would all say, that's me. I think I, it, I can make a life and death decision on duty. I can decide to shoot or not shoot, mm-hmm. but I'm on my way home and the, and the clerk asks me, do I want a paper sack or a plastic sack? Paper or plastic? Uh, you know, I don't care. Whatever you want. You know, yeah. and it, and it, <laughs> it's very, but when we, when we take that into the rest of our life, we, we see that it's so hard to get back into a personal life off-duty. The number one regret of police officers 
with 20 years of service, when you ask them, you say, looking back now, you have 20 years on the job, what's your biggest regret looking back? By far, the biggest regret is, I wish I had done more with my kids when they were little. Mm-hmm. And they would lay their life down for their children, but they didn't know how to make time to be the little league coach. Or they, didn't know how to, they didn't know how to make time to take their kids camping. And those were the failures. And pretty soon, many of them, it, it can cost them a family. Mm-hmm. It certainly can strain the relationship between the police officer and, uh, and their children. And that's a time management issue. That's, that's... So when you get off work and you drop into that depressed state, it's very hard to make a decision to go to dinner. That's overwhelming. <laughs> you know, the phone rings and you don't answer it. That, that's... And what's even worse is today we have such a readily available digital escape. It's your smartphone mm-hmm. is in your hand, and you can escape reality by just getting on social media or you know, surfing the Internet. We don't even need the old school television. We just we, we're, we're digitally plugged in all the time. It's one of the biggest challenges I've started. I got two kids, and uh, now right now they're eleven and eight. And yeah, early on that was a big deal. And forcing myself to just be an assistant coach for my son's little league team was a massive effort. <laughs> However, it, it was. It was an effort to make the decision, but once you got there, I'm sure you were you lived in the moment when you were there. Hundred percent. It was it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. It just it just had to be. I, I found it to be a combination of of not wanting to do it, but also not wanting to put myself out there with other people and interact with people. You know, other coaches. Yeah. I mean, and <laughs> the hardest step in any journey is the first. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was speaking one time to a very large group of Australian police officers. And Australia is very unique because the mental health services in Australia, the progressive movement to get services to cops, are, are coming from the associations. Hmm. They're, they're not really coming from management in, in Australia. It's the, the associations are the ones fighting for uh, mental health services for police very aggressively, and they're doing a, a good job. But I, I, the, the association in, in South Australia... Police Association, and we're in Adelaide, and they had a large, large music hall. There's probably 1,200 police officers. What the union had bought as a, as a gift to every officer that came to the class that night, they each got a copy of our book, Emotional Survival, but they each got a magnetic calendar that hooked onto the door of their refrigerator. And that magnetic calendar had little icons that you could magnetically put onto it so, and they, each cop learned how to manage their time. So they don't wait until Friday night to do, do you want to go to dinner? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What? No, no. They've been trained that five days prior to that, they have pre-planned and proactively, they know on Sunday, they know Friday night we're going out to dinner. And they have four or five days to look forward to it. But they also know that they don't have to make a decision when they get off duty. Once you committed to being an assistant coach, you didn't have a decision to make. You knew Thursday at 6 o'clock you had Little League practice and you were there. So it's, it's removing that decision-making at the last minute is so terribly important for the police families to learn. 
I've found that successful in other way, little ways too. Uh, for example, this is a silly example, but I swear it works. Um, I recently basically threw out my entire wardrobe except for black t-shirts. And I ordered a bunch of simple, plain black t-shirts. And just like Steve Jobs did with the turtleneck, I now only wear black t-shirts <laughs> on my days off. Because it's I don't have to think about it, right? I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about ironing it. I don't think I have to about running to the dry cleaner. It is just a black t-shirt. Uh, Absolutely. But I, but I, but you're right. The scheduling and just planning it. When you plan it two months out, it's easy. Not even that. A week out, it's easy to make that decision because it's not imminent, and then you don't feel the pressure that's around it. You know, and this again goes back to why firefighters, I believe, are so much more proficient in this area than we are. It has to do with scheduling of time. Firefighters are deployed typically in 24-hour shifts. And, you know, a classic fire schedule would be one day on duty followed by two days off duty. So although it's exhausting that 24-hour shift for for a busy fire station, they they have 24 hours off duty. So I'm sorry, they have 48 hours off. One day on, two days off. So their, their kind of joke in their culture is every day is Friday because when you go to work, you have two days off. <laughs> and a lot of fire stations, fire departments rather, will permit officers to swap shifts among themselves so they'll stack their time. So it's not uncommon to find firefighters that have full-time painting businesses on the side or concrete companies or, or their contractors. When they're in their fire mode, they're excellent firefighters. But then they're refurbishing homes or they're being a a shade tree mechanic for business. What a cop tends to do is we work in 10, 12-hour shifts. Then to supplement the cop income, you you work overtime. You work a side job. So you, you take the cop role, and it becomes more intrusive into a bigger and bigger part of your life, whereas the firefighter diversifies their investment portfolio. Mm. And it, 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 they're, they're much better role models than, than we are on what, are these things we're talking about, although that annoys a lot of cops to hear that. <laughs> you, know? you just lost half the audience. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but that's why when you ask old cops, if you had to, to do all over again, what would you do? I'd, become they a will, I'd, I'd be a firefighter. <laughs> I, I got in the wrong line. That's another one. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I thought I'd end our time uh, with just a quick story it's never quick with me i guess i'm i do have my own podcast but um uh with kind of telling the st- my story to you in that the hopes that when someone's listening to this who's got 10 15 years on or maybe they have five years on they can prevent this from happening to them because like i said i got your book i think in 2012 went to the class the same year completely bought in from the minute right like i understood the importance of this um i was active you mentioned mountain biking i was an avid mountain biker i golfed um this is long before the podcast uh but you know lots of things i live in southern california so i got the weather to go do whatever i want at any time of the year and uh married with a young wife and i was in my what mid 30s in in 2012 and the thing that changed right before then was that my son was born so my now i have two kids right but what I, when I went to your course, when I read your book, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. And I could even name people 
in the book. Like, oh, yeah, that's Tim or that's Steve or, you know, whatever. But I thought, well, it's good that I'm not dealing with this. And now I know what the warning signs are uh, so that I don't have to deal with it. And fast forward eight years (laughs) from that point. And in going back through this, through my own self-awareness practice and evaluation recently, realizing, oh, oh, I became that. (laughs) You know, so even with this knowledge, I thought that I quit golfing because I just didn't like spending that much time on a golf course. You know, and it's like, wait a minute, who doesn't like spending five hours out in the sun away from a crying baby? Like, you know, I just stopped doing it. I stopped mountain biking. And I realized that I had a whole group of Eustas in my own experience that I had justified that I'd put away because I just didn't feel like they were my thing anymore. Uh, to include this podcast, you know, uh, I just came back from a break that was, ended up being about five months long. And it was just all of a sudden this podcast didn't interest me anymore. And like, well, maybe I'll just stop it. Maybe it's run its course. Maybe there's nothing else to talk about. And I, I kind of shelved it and thought, well, that's done. And um, didn't acknowledge the importance that it had for me on a couple of different factors. But it became one of those uses as well. Uh, physical fitness, up and down, up and down, and uh, maintaining a consistent practice became something that fell by the wayside. And then in, in my own evaluations too, realizing that in 2016 or so, I really went through a phase where I started buying into that victim mentality at my own office. And so here I am reading your book, going to your class, believe all this stuff, and yet I'm still letting those things take me down a rabbit hole that, you know, in hindsight, I think I needed to go down but that I could have avoided with some, some better practices. So uh, I tell that story just as, as, a, as a reminder to anybody that you need to maintain awareness of this throughout your career. This isn't a book you read once and you shove and go, okay, got it. This is something that we need to maintain constant vigilance for. Well, I appreciate you saying that. You know, we, we learn from what we didn't do right. I, I, I was meeting the other day with a cop who I... Uh, I went to elementary school with, and we're just joking about spelling bees that we had in eighth grade. And he says, you know, it still pisses me off that I spelled this word wrong. And all these years later, he remembers the word that he spelled wrong in eighth grade. I said, do you remember the words you spelled right? He said, no, I don't remember those. That's called the Zygarnik effect. And what cops do is we look at what they don't do right, and we don't help them. But... You know, what you're, what you're describing is the journey of a lot of good cops. And my, my passion right now is the prevention of, of premature death in police officers. But we have to go back to the 20- and 30-year-old year cops to prevent them from dying at 63. We want them to live to be 83. But we also have to look at why these things are occurring. And they're very predictable. And like Gordon Graham always says, they're very preventable. And, and I, I think we just have to change the focus of what we're training. Uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, thank you for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you, I, I said this in the intro that you didn't hear, but uh, when I started this podcast, I sat down and wrote out a list of people I wanted on the show. You were in that top list right then back in 2015. And uh, it's unfortunate that a pandemic was required in order for us to have time to be able to do this. But at, at the same time, I, I appreciate that you've taken the effort to to sit and talk with us today. Where can people learn? Thank you. Where can people learn more about 
your work, where uh, you will be touring once this pandemic is over, and uh, where to purchase your yeah, where to purchase your book and where to find out more about you. Well, I think if you we have a website called emotionalsurvival.com, and the book we've been discussing is is called Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, and uh, we've been very very satisfied, very excited with the the response to that book over the last 15 years by police across the U.S., Canada, and Australia. Um, the book has legs because the, the cops say the things we talk about they can relate to and it helps them. Uh, thanks to COVID-19, we've just finished the rewrite on that book mm. where we'll tie it more into some of the medical diseases that police work cause. But our, our goal is just to, to help cops and to hopefully give them a roadmap. So I'm very appreciative of the time that you gave me to discuss this with you today. So thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. We'll uh, put the links to your website in our show notes and everything so people can find out more. I was actually, before COVID, I was scheduled to see you next month nearby and was excited to see the class again. Uh, and So hopefully that'll get rescheduled. Um, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic course. The book, and I don't remember if I've said this to you directly. I know I said it earlier. I give this to new people in my on my squad when they come and join me, and I give them a copy of it. And I've had two officers tell me that it saved their marriage, and it, another officer tell me that it helped them get into therapy. So that should help. I'm, I'm, I like hearing that. That's that's why we wrote that book was to to help cops and give them a roadmap to be of some assistance to them. So I'm, I'm that makes my day to hear that. Thank you. Thanks for your time. All right, if you got something out of this episode today, if you like what you heard, you were inspired by what Kevin Gilmartin had to say, please do a couple of things. Uh, share this post or share this episode with somebody you care about, uh, a friend, a partner, a coworker, a spouse. Share this. Second of all, read Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement if you haven't done that. Third is to go see him speak. It is that powerful, and I can't recommend it enough. Third, or fourth, I'm losing track, is to give us a review on iTunes or the podcast player of your choice, whatever you prefer, and let people, other people know that you got something from this, and then that helps us build this show. It helps us spread the word that we're trying to get out here about mental health and, uh, and management for first responders. It really does help. Also, want to remind you that if you want some cool gear, you can check out the shop at thesquadroom.net and select the menu, uh, select shop in the menu, or check out a worthycauselife.com for our gear. And also just want to remind you to that uh, Signature Coins has been a great sponsor of this show. A special thanks to them. If you're looking for challenge coins for your agency or specialty unit, check them out at SignatureCoins.com and use that coupon code, the Squad Room for $50 off. That's all one word, $50 off with the Squad Room. All right, until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.